The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Can sudden death victims themselves help in healing loved ones left behind? How do we know their thoughts and prayers are with us in our grief? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. On today's show, we continue last week's conversation with Fran Whitney Nelson. Fran's a grief educator and sudden death trauma specialist who lives in Montpelier, Vermont. She's worked with the state police there in notifying families concerning all types of sudden death situations, from accidents to murders to suicides, and has developed great skills in helping families recover from such tragedies. She's an expert as well in using animals, such as miniature horses, to help children recover from grief situations. Fran, welcome back to NDE Radio. Good morning, Lee. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice again. Thanks. Fran, <laughs> Fran, after the end of last week's show, you mentioned to me how touches often occur. Tell our yeah. audience what you mean by touches and what's the uh, message they're trying to send. Well, I mentioned last week that I did a five-year study with 1,696 grieving people, um, and I never asked any of them if they had experienced any kind of contact from the person after they had died. But people started telling me stories about contacts that they had received from the people they adored who had died. And to lay a little bit of groundwork, I want to tell you how I originally received that information to what I attributed it. Mm-hmm. Our minds require order to function properly. And death is extremely disorderly to us. And the less transition there is, meaning between expected sudden and sudden unexpected death, the more disorderly it is. Now, we get some gifts of grief, or I call them gifts of grief. One is the trauma membrane, which is nature's natural morphine for us to help us get us through the first few weeks and few months. And there's another one that I've named involuntary reality revision. And... To illustrate what I mean by that, normally I'm not called unless someone has died. But I got a call out to come to a hospital emergency department to be with the wife of a fire chief who had gone in, uh, into cardiac arrest at the scene of a fire. Mm. And he was a beloved, well-known fire chief. And when I got to the hospital, um, the physician came out stood over this wife and had his arms crossed, no transitional statements whatsoever, and said, your husband's gone. Now, her emotional need was to believe that he was all right. Involuntary reality revision means we, we see or hear something traumatic. We turn it into something that's compatible with our emotional need. Her emotional need was to believe he was all right. So when she heard, your husband is gone, illogically, but for her own protection, she turned that into 
her husband went back to the fire station. So when I started hearing stories at the beginning of my study about these after-death contacts, I actually honestly attributed them to involuntary reality revision. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit cynical that they were actually genuine, but, you know, as this study went on, I moved from being, I guess you could say, cynical uh, or thinking it was uh, IR to being neutral. Well, maybe they really do and maybe they really don't, but it didn't matter. As long as it was comforting to them, who cared if they were genuine? Mm-hmm. And then as the study went on, and I can tell you as recently as last week, I, I'm hearing more about them. So I believe they actually happen, and they seem to be most prevalent with sudden unexpected death. The lack of goodbye seems to cause a person's spirit, or whatever you want to name it, to assure the loved ones who are left behind that they're okay. And that sounds a bit of a dichotomy, considering that they're dead. Mm. But they seem to be um, unbelievably comforting and benign. And I call them touches, as opposed to signs, because... They usually happen um, with people who are very close emotionally to the person who died. And they're usually are, are very often very gentle, very soft, and, and can be very, very, very comforting. So that's why I call them touches as opposed to signs. And, and how do these touches manifest themselves? Well... Often in dreams, one I most particularly remember was a 12-year-old boy who died from suicide. And he had had an argument with his mother, actually, about his homework. And I made the notification to the mom in the hospital. And since you do similar work, sometimes you know what a reaction can be to information like that. And... The mom called me the next day to tell me that she had gone to sleep and had an incredibly beautiful dream about her her little boy coming to tell her how much he loved her and that he was actually okay and he's sorry about what he did. Now, that's that's kind of one that someone could say, well, okay, she did that for self-comfort. But I've learned that very often these touches do manifest in dreams. And if they are benign and comforting, generally, I, I think they're genuine. If people are frightened by them, I don't actually feel they're genuine touches. Mm-hmm. But there was a 17-year-old boy or a teenager who died from suicide, and he had taken the family shotgun in the family van and gone into the woods, parked in the woods, and had killed himself. And mom and dad, a few days later, were standing in the hallway upstairs in the house where they lived, um, outside this young man's door. 
which was shut. Mm-hmm. And then the door slowly, quietly opened, and then it started jerking a few inches to the right, a few inches to the left, jerking, 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 and jerking. And mm. it was in the winter, so there were no windows open and uh, nothing blowing through the house. And then another time, they, mom and dad were lying on this young man's bed, talking to each other, sharing memories of their son. And there was a mobile hanging over the bed uh, from the ceiling, and it started to spin in one direction, and then it stopped, and it spun in another direction. And they said that went on for about a half an hour. And hmm. there were a lot of electrical anomalies. This seems to happen uh, pretty often from touches where TV or radios or phones will, will do peculiar things, turn on and off, or even turn on when they haven't been turned on by any human uh, hand. Another case, um, a woman's husband died of a, a heart attack, and he didn't have any history of heart problems. And he used to collect rare coins. And she lived in a very tidy, compact little cottagey house, meaning everything was organized and very clean. And she was looking for a box in which he had some rare coins. And she tore that house apart trying to find this box of coins. And the night before the funeral, she wanted to be in the house by herself. So no one was staying there with her. And when she came down the stairs the next morning and went into the kitchen, sitting on the floor in the middle of the kitchen was this box of her coins. Hmm. So this means that a deceased person has the ability to one invade our dreams mm-hmm. uh, and two move physical objects that's well, that's pretty that's pretty incredible according to, to my experience and i've dealt with many 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 grieving people so uh, uh, yes An- another thing another case um, a young teenager was killed in a car crash and in the middle of the night, the mom woke up and felt compelled to go to the patio door in the living room. Moonlit night, very bright out, and she saw her son skiing across the lawn in front of the porch. And she went back to bed, and she woke up thinking she had dreamed this. Mm-hmm. And she went out on the porch, and there were ski tracks on the lawn where she had seen her son. Wow. Uh, when you, now, you deal primarily with people who've had sudden traumatic death. Um, and you'd think, and stories have been relayed, that when somebody dies that way, they are uh, confused, uh Sometimes they uh, don't even realize that um, they're dead. Sometimes they uh, don't. They they lack the ability to go on into the light, as people have described it in near death studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people say, "Well, they get stuck here as as a as a ghostly spirit." Do you think um, is there a way of differentiating in the various kinds of touches that you that you've 
heard about uh, between somebody who might be just passing on and saying goodbye as opposed to someone who's sort of stuck here because they're confused? Well, I think the touches that come from someone who's, quote, stuck, I think would not be as benign and as comforting. I think they would be more agitated and they would happen with greater frequency. And I don't think that they would be as gentle and, and as soft as the goodbye is the goodbye touches because have, one of the one of the most difficult things for people who are left behind from a sudden unexpected death is the lack of a forever goodbye and it seems to be really important to the people who are making these touches that they assure the people they love that they're all right um, that I had a, a case where a young female died from suicide, and I will tell you the grief from suicide and the hierarchy of grief from sudden unexpected death is the most complicated. And this young female had a beautiful, beautiful singing voice, and she wrote poetry, and about a month after she died, mom went into her bedroom, and mom and dad and brother spent a lot of time in this girl's room, just, you know, looking at her things and sitting on her bed and sitting at her desk. And one of them walked in, or was the mom walked in, and on the floor, which had not been there, two hours before, and no one else was in the house, was a poem this young woman had written a couple years before about her dying young. Hmm. So I don't know... I don't know the purpose but uh, of something like that, but it, it what it feels to me... I will tell you what seems to indicate to me whether something is authentic or not, and it's, a, it's an unusual thing that I've started noticing in myself. When somebody is telling me something about a touch, it, if it's really genuine, uh, my scalp starts to prickle, mm. and then my, my, all, my, all of my skin starts to prickle. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know why I do that. But it seems that if it's a genuine touch, then then I start to prickle, and I certainly prickled when they told me about this this poem. It's like she knew that she was going to die beforehand, and I think the purpose is to try to ease some of the suffering of the people who are left behind. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. You know, it's it was, uh, it's. It's quite remarkable that somebody, say they die by their own hand or in a terrible car accident, would have the presence of mind to to think first of uh, of the loved ones they've left behind and and want to say goodbye in some way. Uh, it almost implies that once you're clear of your death, that there's a 
there's a sea of love that you that you are swept up in and you want to communicate it to the people left behind. Oh, absolutely. I think more than anything else, the people who die suddenly and unexpectedly, and I've dealt with a lot of suicides, Lee, they, they're concerned about the suffering of the people they loved and still do love. And I think that's a lot of what generates touches, is to try to alleviate the suffering of people left behind. Mm. I read some... Case. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go go ahead. Um, a young man had also died by suicide, and Mom was in bed reading, and she she felt some movement on the bed, and she looked up, and she didn't see anyone, but she saw an imprint on the bed as if someone was sitting there. And then she felt a very, very gentle touch on her cheek, and then the imprint disappeared. And with all her heart, she believes it was her son telling her that he he was, it's okay, Mom, I'm, I'm okay. And that's what she felt very strongly. And it seems that after these touch, you know, I tell people, write these down. It's not that you're going to forget the details, but if you have them collected, say, in a notebook, there are going to be incredibly raw times when you think you cannot put one foot in front of the other and you can't stand this pain for another day. And you open this notebook and you read these touches and I promise you, you're going to feel comfort knowing that even though their body died, somewhere out there, their spirit is still alive and still connected to you. That's a, that's a wonderful idea. That's a great suggestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, the power uh, that I find in dealing with patients in the hospital sometimes of of having stories like near-death experience stories are mm-hmm. so comforting. And when it's happened to you personally, uh, that, that, that would be a powerful healing tool throughout the rest of your life. Oh, I, I, wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you, too, you work so closely with animals. Yes. Have you any? Have you had any experience of a, a beloved animal passing on and then also indicating a, a sign of some sort? I have. Um, I, I certainly have. Well, I, I've experienced it a couple of times myself, but it will be. Hard for me to go through that, so I'll tell you about other people's experiences. All right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there was one woman um, whose one of her very first memories uh, as, as a youngster was when she was sick, and um, her dad uh, brought her uh, little pony into mm-hmm. her you know, into her bedside uh, when she was sick. And actually, after she became well, then the little pony, who who was old, um, 
died, and she maintains that she woke up in the night and she heard little clip-clop of hoof hmm. in her bedroom. And she sat up and she swears to this day that she saw that little horse in her bedroom. And wow. it's common, it seems to be common also with dogs. Um, one woman told me that um, she was driving down the highway. Uh, it was first thing in the morning, the sun was just coming up, and one of her beloved dogs had recently died. And I can tell you, the grief when, when our beloved animals die is is really heart-wrenching for usually about three months, mm. the, the rawest part, because basically they never do anything to hurt us until they die, and then they just destroy us for a while. So she was having a very hard time, and she and the dog used to take long walks uh, when she got home from work, and she said she saw him, standing beside the road in a place where they used to take a little break from walking and sit under a tree, and she would give him a treat. And I do, with all my heart, believe that there are some animals who who do make <laughs> comfort stops to their people mm. after mm. they die. Yeah, I do. Wow. Have uh, have you experienced people uh, saying goodbye to you? I have not personally. No. Mm. I've I've but had a. You go I've had a few. Me. I was going to say I've had a few situations and uh, where I felt a hand on my shoulder one time of a woman oh. who would, had died in the hospital and I didn't even know she was there but she was a good friend. She was dying of uh, of cancer and. Right. Uh, uh, I had worked, I'd worked with her, uh, in, in trying some alternative healing. Mm -hmm. which, uh, but I, you know, it, um, I didn't know she was in the hospital. I was sitting in a corner having, uh, lunch in the cafeteria. I felt this hand on my shoulder and knew immediately <laughs> who it was. You and, did. uh, and later found oh. that she had died just at that moment and was so passing through. She was saying through. goodbye to you, wasn't she? She was saying goodbye, yes. And there have been I other things like, like that, so I, I know this. I know this happens, but I wonder why it it happens only sometimes, you know, just occasionally. Um, well, you know, one of the things that I think can block people understanding some of these touches are incredibly soft and 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 very quiet and very. Very, very gentle. And when people are newly bereaved and they're in the trauma membrane, sometimes they're not able to hear or see those touches because they are so traumatized. And I would wager there probably have been touches that people aren't aware of. They, weren't, they didn't know what they were or they didn't hear them or see them because they were so grief-stricken. So I would imagine that it happens more often than people know, but 
the people were so deeply immersed in their grief, they didn't have access. They couldn't have access to those touches. But I also think it depends on the age of the person, the cause and the manner of death, and honestly, how the death notification was made. Mm. Because there are some really bad death notifications who make bad situations. Not intentional, but a lot of people, and most law enforcement, don't actually get training in how to make them. And so what happens inadvertently, sometimes they do make a terrible situation worse. And so I, I have a friend, actually, whose son died from suicide almost 30 years ago. And to this day, she is so enraged at the Vermont State Police for the way they unintentionally trying to protect her. They asked her husband to send her into the house while they talked to him. She was so angry about that 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 had a lot to do with her not being able to reach healthy grief resolution for a long time. So there, are, I think there are various factors that contribute to the environment that creates a person's ability to actually hear or see these touches. Yes, and for those people who didn't hear last week's show, I would refer them back to um, that on it's archived on our on the website uh, Talk Zone because you described I think very very well how um, you handle the situations when you're involved in uh, letting people know that a loved one has died. Right. Yeah. So they can about about four hundred times, and it never gets easier. No, no. Um, do people ever come back to you and say, "I, I had this experience"? Uh, how do you? Well, you said actually earlier in the in the program that people were voluntarily telling you about this even before you believed it was possible. Yes, they were, and that's what caused me to move from being cynical to neutral to absolutely believing that they're <laughs> so genuine, mi- that they really happened. So maybe in a way you were getting a message from the other side through these stories that you should be more... Many, (laughs) (laughs) many messages. (laughs) Yes, indeed I was. Now, have you you written anything about all of this? Something that the the audience could get, uh, get a hold of? I'm writing a lot of different books. I write booklets um, on different aspects of death, and right now I'm writing one, 100 Questions and Answers about Death and Grief, uh, which are authentic questions. I haven't made them up, but when I do um, a a lecture, I ask people to fill out a form and um, to be eligible for a door prize drawing, and one of the ways they get eligible is to ask two or three questions about any aspect of death or grief. So I have a store of hundreds and hundreds of questions. So I'm writing a booklet about that. I'm writing another one called Do They All Really Mean to Die? Dealing with the Aftermath of Suicide. And I am writing about after-death touches, Mm. plus about um, when animals die, um, saying goodbye to beloved 
four-legged companions. They're not just animals. So, I, yes, I am writing a lot of things right now. <laughs> do, do you have any that are already written and available to people? Oh, sure. Um, tell, well, tell, about, tell us some of those titles and how they can get, how people can get a copy. Oh, well, I would be very happy to. One is called um, A Grief Guide for Dealing with Sudden Death Trauma, What to Expect When a Loved One Dies with No Goodbye. Another one is Preparing for Your First Visit with a Funeral Director, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Um, another one is a grief handbook for victim advocates and caregivers guiding a family step-by-step through the aftermath of sudden death. And another one is the role of the monument in the grieving process. And, and how could people get uh, get copies of, of these? They can email me at LegacyHill at PShift.com. LegacyHill, one phrase. PShift is short for power shift. LegacyHill at PShift.com, and I will tell them how to get copies. Okay, and and maybe do you have, uh, when you've completed the next booklet, do you let people know that it's ready and available? Do you have a mailing list, in other words? I don't, and I should. I have a website, though. It's called com. No, no spaces, and it's not. It doesn't matter if it's capitalized or lowercase. It's Death Education Consult www.deatheducationconsulting.com. Fran, it looks like we're out of time once again. <laughs> uh, this, these half hours go so quickly. They really uh, do. <laughs> but but I want to thank to I, I want to thank our guest today, Fran Whitney Nelson. Um, for a fascinating discussion about the touches and uh, many other things besides. If uh, you would like to listen to this show again or any other of our programs, and I would suggest going back a week and hearing our first uh, conversation with Fran, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, please check that website at iands.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference on NDE's Health and Healing in Newport Beach, California from August 28th through the 31st. So save those dates and thanks for listening.